Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is part one of two of chapter two, which is entitled The Origins of American Policing. In February 1826, Azeel Conklin, the captain of the watch in New York's third district, was suspended, but later reinstated, after a conviction for assault and battery. This incident was not especially unusual at the time. Even now, it would only stand out because cops are so rarely convicted regardless of the evidence against them. Yet, if the licensed use of violence is not new, the system employing it today looks very different than that of the 1820s. And if the abuse of authority is itself a constant feature of government, the nature of that authority has undergone substantial changes. Characteristics of Modern Police Policing itself is not a distinctly modern activity. It has existed in some form under num numerous political systems, in disparate locations for centuries, yet most of the institutions historically responsible for law enforcement would not be recognizable to us as police. Colonial America, for example, had nothing like our modern police departments. Quote, the earliest specialized police were watchmen. However, although their function was certainly specialized, it is not always clear that it was policing. Very often they acted only as sentinels, responsible for summoning others to apprehend criminals, repel attack, or put out fires. Unquote. It was not until the middle of the 19th century that most American cities had police organizations with roughly the same form and function as our contemporary departments. Though most historians agree that it was in the mid-1800s that police forces throughout the United States converged into a single type, it has been surprisingly difficult to enumerate the major features of a modern police operation. David Bailey defines the modern police in terms of their public auspices, specialized function, and professionalism, though he does also mention their non-military character and their authority to use force. Richard Lundman offers four criteria, full-time service, continuity in office, continuity in procedure, and control by a central governmental authority. Selden Bacon, meanwhile, suggests six characteristics, a citywide jurisdiction, b. 24-hour responsibility, c. a single organization responsible for the greater part of formal enforcement, d. paid personnel on a salary basis, e. a personnel occupied solely with police duties, f. general rather than specific functions. Raymond Fosdick argues that the defining mark of modern police departments is their organization under a single commander, and Eric Monconen takes as his sole requirement the presence of uniforms. Three of these criteria are easily done away with. The use of uniforms is neither a necessary nor a unique feature of modern policing. Some police officers, especially detectives, do not wear uniforms, and are no less modern for that fact. Furthermore, even within the history of law enforcement, uniforms predate the modern institution. The London Watch, for example, was uniformed in 1791. Likewise, Though most police agencies are headed by a single police chief, this is not always the case, and has not always been the case even in departments that are distinctly modern. Police boards of various kinds have moved in and out of fashion throughout the modern period, especially at the cusp of the 19th and 20th centuries. The civilian character of the police is more problematic, and precisely because it is problematic, I will put it aside as a suggested criterion for modern police. The relationship between policing and the military has always been complex and controversial, and if current trends are any indication, 
it will remain so for some time. Given the ambiguous and shifting character of the police, it seems unwise to generalize about its essentially civilian or military nature, and I do not wish to define away the problem at the expense of a more nuanced analysis. Those characteristics remaining may be divided into two groups. The first are the defining characteristics of police, one, the authority to use force, two, a public character and accountability, at least in principle, to some central governmental authority, and three, general law enforcement duties, as opposed to limited specified duties such as parking enforcement or animal control. These traits, I think, are essential to any organization that claims to be engaged in policing. The second set comprises those criteria distinguishing modern policing from earlier forms. These include 1. The investment of responsibility for law enforcement in a single organization. 2. Citywide jurisdiction and centralization. 3. An intended continuity in office and procedure. 4. A specialized policing function, meaning that the organization is only or mainly responsible for policing, not keeping the streets clean, putting out fires, or other extraneous duties. 5. 24-hour service. And 6. Personnel paid on a salary basis rather than by fee. There's one final characteristic that deserves consideration. The development of policing has been guided in large part by an emerging orientation toward preventive rather than responsive activity. Though this idea was firmly established by the time modern departments took stage, it was not until quite some time later that specific techniques of prevention entered into use, and the degree to which the police do or can or should act to prevent crime remains even now a matter of intense debate. Characteristics of modern policing Policing characteristics Authority to use force Public accountable to central governmental authority General law enforcement duties Modern characteristics Single organization Citywide jurisdiction Centralized control Continuity in office and procedure, specialized function, 24-hour service, salaried personnel, preventive orientation. Rather than use these factors to draw a sharp line demarcating a clearly identifiable set of modern police, a line most police departments will have crossed and recrossed, I propose we use these criteria to place various organizations on a continuum as being more or less modern depending on the degree to which they display these characteristics. I have listed the traits here in order of what I take to be their relative significance. This approach may seem a bit impressionistic, but I think the picture it offers is helpful in understanding the evolution of police systems. For the most part, the creators of the new police did not see themselves as marching inexorably toward an ideal of modern policing. Instead, they adapted pre-existing institutions to the demands of new circumstances, evolving their system slowly through a process of invention and imitation, improvisation and experimentation, promise and compromise, trial and error. The rate of progress was unsteady, its path wavering, its advances frequently reversed, and its direction determined by a variety of factors including political pressure, scandals, wars, riots, economics, immigration, budget constraints, the law, and sometimes crime. There is a further advantage to this approach. It acknowledges the fact of continuing development and leaves open the possibility of further modernization. Hence, rather than a revolution of modernity occurring between 1829 and about 1860, we are faced with a much more protracted process. 
we find police departments approaching their modern form quite a while earlier, and yet we can recognize that these same departments may not be fully modernized even now. In short, this view avoids the tendency to treat our contemporary institution as the final product of earlier progress, as an endpoint marking completion, and instead situates it as one stage in an ongoing process. English predecessors. Many people find it astonishing that the police have predecessors. They seem to imagine that the cop has always been there in something like his present capacity, subject only to the periodic change of uniform or the occasional technological advance. Quite to the contrary, the police have a rich and complex history, if an ugly one. Our contemporary institution owes much of its character to those that came before it, including those offices imported or imposed during the colonial period. These, in turn, have their own stories, closely linked to the creation of modern states. It's worth considering this lineage and the forces that propelled change from one form of control to another. During the time between the fall of Rome and the rise of modern states, policing, like political authority, became quite decentralized. Quote, Gradually, new subordinate kingdoms were formed, delegating the power to create police, but holding on the, to the power to make law. Unquote. Within such arrangements, policing initially took an informal mode, such as that of the Frank Pledge system in England. Under this system, families grouped themselves together in sets of ten, called tithings, and collections of ten tithings, called hundreds. The heads of these families pledged to one another to obey the law. Together, they were responsible for enforcing that pledge apprehending any of their own who violated it, and combining for mutual protection. If they failed in these duties, they were fined by the sovereign. Under the Frank Pledge system, the responsibility for enforcing the law and maintaining order fell to everyone in the community. Quote, Our extremely modern concept of a specialized police force did not then exist. Neither was there any public means for repressing or preventing crime, as distinguished from its detection and the apprehension of offenders. The members of each tithing were simply bound to a mutual undertaking to apprehend and present for trial any of their number who might commit an offense." Unquote. This arrangement relied on the social conditions present in small communities, especially the sense of interpersonal connection and interdependence, but we should be careful of romanticizing this idyllic scenario. The Frank Pledge system was imposed by the Norman conquerors as a means of maintaining colonial rule. Essentially, they forced the conquered communities to enforce the Norman law. Still, the system was rather limited in its authoritarian uses, as it depended on a common acceptance of the law. Hence, English sovereigns later found it necessary to supplement the Frank Pledge with the appointment of a shire reeve or sheriff to act in local affairs as a general representative of the crown. The sheriff was responsible for enforcing the monarch's will in military, fiscal, and judicial matters, and for maintaining the domestic peace. Sheriffs were appointed by and directly accountable to the sovereign. They were responsible for organizing the tithings and the hundreds, inspecting the weapons, and, when necessary, calling together a group of men to serve as a posse comitatus, pursuing and apprehending fugitives. The sheriffs were paid a portion of the taxes they collected, which led to abuses and made them rather unpopular figures. Eventually, following a series of scandals and complaints, the sheriff's powers were eroded and some of his responsibilities were assigned to new offices, 
including the coroner, the justice of the peace, and the constable. According to the 1285 Statute of Winchester, the constable was responsible for acting as the sheriff's agent. Two constables were appointed for every hundred, thus providing more immediate supervision of the tithings and the hundreds. Quote, the constable's early history is closely intertwined with military affairs and with martial law, for after the conquest, the Norman marshals, predecessors of the modern constable, held positions of great dignity and were drawn for the most part from the baronage. As leaders of the king's army, they seem to have exercised a certain jurisdiction over military offenders, particularly when the army was engaged on foreign soil, and therefore beyond the reach of the usual institutions of justice. The disturbed conditions attending the wars on the, of the Roses brought the constables further powers of summary justice, as in cases of treason and similar state crimes. They therefore came to be a convenient means by which the English kings from time to time overrode the ordinary safeguards of English law. These special powers originating in the law martial were expanded until they came to represent what we now know as martial law." Unquote. Beyond his original military function and the additional job of serving the sheriff, the constable was also responsible for a host of other duties, including the collection of taxes, the inspection of highways, and serving as the local magistrate. Ironically, as the posse comitatus came increasingly to act as a militia, the constable was without assistance in policing. By the end of the 13th century, the constable was no longer connected to the tithing. He acted instead as an agent of the manor and the crown. By the beginning of the 16th century, the constable's function was quite limited. Constables only made arrests in cases where the justice of the peace issued a warrant. Around the middle of the 13th century, towns of notable size were directed by local edict to institute a night watch. This was usually an unpaid compulsory service borne by every adult male. Carrying only a staff and a lantern, the watch would walk the streets from late evening until dawn, keeping an eye out for fire, crime, or other threats, sounding an alarm in the event of emergency. Charlies, so-called because they were created during the reign of Charles II, were unarmed, untrained, undersupervised, often unwilling, and frequently drunk. In 1727, Joseph Cotton, the deputy steward of Westminster, viewed St. Margaret's watch house and complained that there was Quote, neither constable, beadle, watchman, or other person, save one who was so drunk that he was not capable of giving any answer, present in or near the said watch house. Unquote. A few years later, in 1735, John Goland of Bond Street complained to the Burgesses that he had been robbed three times in five years, noting that he quote, generally finds the watchman drunk and wandering about with lewd women. Unquote. The watch thus represented neither a significant bulwark against crime nor a major source of power for the state, yet the watch continued in various forms for 600 years. During the 18th century, the London watch underwent a long series of reforms. While neglect of duty and drunkenness remained major complaints, most of the characteristics of modern police were introduced to the watch in this period, first in one locale and then in the others. Quote, the goal was a system of street policing that was honest, accountable, and impartial in its administration and operation." Unquote. 
Toward this end, the West End parishes of St. James, Piccadilly, and St. George, Hanover Square, began paying watchmen in 1735. Most other parishes adopted the practice within the next 50 years. During this same time, more men were hired, hours of operation were expanded, command hierarchies and plans of supervision were drafted, minimum qualifications established, record-keeping introduced, and pensions offered. Quote, by 1775, Westminster and several neighboring parishes had a night watch system that was both professional and hierarchical in structure, charged with preventing crime and apprehending night walkers and vagabonds. While police authority did remain divided between several local bodies and officials, decentralization was not necessarily synonymous with defectiveness. These parochial authorities put increasing numbers of constables, beetles, church officials, watchmen, and militia patrols on the street, paid and equipped them. They spent increased amounts of time disciplining them when they were delinquent and increasing amounts of money on wages." Unquote. Thus, during the 18th century, the London Watch came very nearly to resemble the modern police department that replaced it. The Watch was also supplemented by various private efforts, including a river police, created by local merchants and taken over by the government in 1800. Quote, by 1829, London had become a patchwork of public and private police forces, supported by vestries, church wardens, boards of trustees, commissioners, parishes, magistrates, and courts elite. Unquote. Among this mix, we find one group worthy of special notice, the thief-takers, forerunners of the modern detective. Despite their name, thief-takers were less interested in catching thieves than in retrieving stolen property and collecting rewards, and the easiest way to do that was to act as a fence for the thieves, returning the goods and splitting the fee. Until his execution in 1725, Jonathan Wilde was England's most prominent thief-taker, controlling an international operation that included warehouses in two countries and a ship for transport. Such was the state of policing when Robert Peel, the Home Secretary, proposed a plan for citywide police force. This body, the Metropolitan Police Department, now nicknamed Bobbies after their creator, but commonly called crushers by the public of the time, adopted many of the innovations previously introduced in the local watch, adding to these a new element of centralization. It thus fulfilled most of the criteria defining modern policing. Peel based his effort on his experiences in Ireland, where he had introduced the Royal Irish Constabulary in 1818. Hence, both the traditional watch and the police system that came to replace it were informed by the experience of colonial rule. They were each created by foreign conquerors to control rebellious populations. Peel had seen the difficulties of military occupation and understood the need to establish some sort of legitimacy. He crafted his police accordingly, first in Ireland and then with revisions in England. In London, the police uniforms and equipment were selected with an eye toward avoiding a military appearance, though critics of the police idea still drew such comparisons. In 1829, citing a rise in crime, especially property crime, Parliament accepted Peel's proposal with only a few adjustments. The most important of these compromises excluded the old city of London from the jurisdiction of the Metropolitan Police. The old city of London, about one square mile geographically, re retained its own police force, which in 1839 was reorganized on the Metropolitan model. Meanwhile, the Watch and River Police were preserved and proved for some time more effective than the new Metropolitans. Still, though they lacked citywide jurisdiction and sole policing authority, the London Metropolitan Police are generally credited as the first modern police department. 
Some historians treat the modern American police as a straightforward application of Peel's model. As we shall see, however, policing in the United States followed a separate course, motivated by different concerns producing unique institutional arrangements. In fact, I shall argue that American policing systems, especially those designed for slave control, neared the modern type well before Peel's reforms. Colonial Forerunners the American colonies mostly imported the British system of sheriffs, constables, and watches, though with some important differences. Sheriffs at first were appointed by governors, and made responsible for apprehending suspects, guarding prisoners, executing civil processes, overseeing elections, collecting taxes, and performing various physical, uh, fiscal functions. Corruption in all of these duties was quite common, with sheriffs accepting bribes from suspects and prisoners, neglecting their civil duties, tampering with elections, and embezzling public funds. The sheriff was empowered to make arrests when issued a warrant, or without one in certain circumstances, and was given additional duties during emergencies, but during the colonial period the office was only tangentially concerned with criminal law. The constable's duties were similarly varied. He was charged with summoning citizens to town meetings, collecting taxes, settling claims against the town, preparing elections, impressing workers for road repair, serving warrants, summoning juries, delivering fugitives to other jurisdictions, and overseeing the night watch. In addition, he was, in theory, expected to enforce all laws and maintain the Crown's peace. In practice, however, constables were paid by a system of fees and tended to concentrate on the better-paying tasks. In the 17th and 18th centuries, both the sheriff and the constable were elected positions. Still, they were not popular jobs, many people refused to serve when elected, and the authority of each office was commonly challenged, sometimes by violence. In 1756, for example, Sheriff John Christie was killed when trying to make an arrest. James Wilkes was convicted, but was soon pardoned by Governor Sir Charles Hardy, who reasoned that Wilkes, quote, had imbibed and strongly believed a common error generally prevailing among the lower class of mankind in this part of the world, that after warning the officer to desist and bidding him to stand off at his peril, it was lawful to oppose him by any means to prevent the arrest." Unquote. The fact that such a view would be respected despite, it, despite its legal inaccuracy says a great deal about the weakness of the sheriff's position. Neither of these offices was designated for what we now consider police work, and neither ever fully adapted itself to that function. Constables survived into the 20th century, though only as a kind of rural relic. Sheriffs, meanwhile, retained many of their original duties, especially those concerning jails, and in some places still patrol the unincorporated areas of counties, though even in this respect state police forces sometimes supersede them. Rather than invest much authority in these offices, the colonial government relied primarily on informal means of policing. As public nuisances arose concerning the behavior of slaves, the delivery of goods, sanitation, street use, gambling, and the like, the local government responded by instituting regulations. These would generally be ignored. To remedy this deficiency, the civil authorities called on the family and the church to use their influence to bring about compliance. Where that failed, they would institute a system of fines for violators and rewards for informers. They might then direct the constable to enforce the laws, or else appoint special informers concerned only with that particular law. Eventually, towns began consolidating these positions and appointing general officers called marshals. Citizens were further expected to participate in law enforcement through the night watch. Quote, the character of the night watch varied from time to time. 
Sometimes it was composed entirely of civilians forced to take their regular turn as watchmen or pay a substitute to replace them. At other times, especially during the intercolonial wars, the militia took over the watch. At still other times, a paid constable's watch was used, or citizens themselves were paid to guard the city. Unquote. As in England, the watch was charged with keeping order, reporting fires, sounding an alarm when crimes were discovered, detaining suspicious persons, and sometimes suppressing riots and lighting street lamps. The Boston watch was in many respects typical. All men over 18 years old were required to serve in person or provide a substitute, though ministers and certain public officials were exempted from duty. The state legislature ordered the watchmen to, quote, see that all disturbances and disorders in the night shall be prevented and suppressed, and gave them, unquote, and gave them the, quote, authority to examine all persons whom they have reason to suspect of any unlawful design, and to demand of them their business abroad at such time, and whither they are going, to enter any house of ill fame for the purpose of suppressing any riot or disturbance, unquote. They were further instructed to, quote, walk in rounds in and about the streets, wharves, lanes, and principal inhabited parts within each town to prevent any danger by fire, and to see that good order is kept, taking particular observation and inspection of all houses and families of evil fame." Unquote. New York provided similar instruction in 1698. The watchmen were told to go, quote, round the city each hour in the night with a bell, and there to proclaim the season of the weather and the hour of the night, and if they meet with in their rounds any people disturbing the peace or lurking about any person's house or committing any theft, they take the most prudent way that can they can to secure the said persons. Unquote. Like the modern police, the colonial watch was public in character and accountable to a central authority, usually either a town council or state legislature. Unlike the modern police, however, the watch had only limited authority to use force, with no training and usually no equipment for doing so. As far as modern characteristics go, the watch shared responsibility for enforcement with the constables, sheriffs, and sometimes other inspectors. Thus, it was not the major body responsible for law enforcement. Its personnel rotated with deliberate frequency, and men many places it only patrolled part of the year. Hence, it lacked continuity in office and procedure. While the watch was concerned with crime, it was often more concerned with other dangers, especially fire and military attack. Thus, it lacked the specialized policing function. Except in times of emergency, the watch only patrolled at night, offering no 24-hour service. And for the most part, its personnel were not paid at all. In some, by other criteria, the colonial watch may be counted as a policing effort, but in no way did it constitute a modern police agency. The standard story in the history of policing, if we may speak of such a thing, presents the modern American police force as a direct adaptation of the night watch following the English pattern, but this story leaves out significant stages in the development of American policing, or put differently, it omits an entire branch of the American police family tree. Quote, in fact, the first major reform of the traditional system did not occur in any of the big northwestern cities in the mid-1800s, but in the cities of the Deep South in a much earlier period. As early as the 1780s, Charleston introduced a paramilitary municipal police force primarily to control the city's large population of slaves. In later years, Savannah, New Orleans, and Mobile did the same." Unquote. These police forces, which I will refer to as city guards, were distinct from both the militia and the watch. 
They were armed, uniformed, and salaried. They patrolled at night, but kept a reserve force for daytime emergencies. In most respects, they resembled modern American police departments to the same degree as did the London Metropolitan Police of 1829. Of course, these city guards did not arise out of nothing. To understand their origin, we should consider the peculiar institutions of Southern society, its social and economic systems, and the police measures that arose to preserve them. Slave Patrols Relying on a slave economy, the American South faced unique problems of social control, especially in areas where white people were in the minority. Regardless of their own economic class or ethnic background, white people were haunted by the prospect of a slave revolt. They became utterly obsessed with controlling the lives of black people, free and slave, and developed a deep and terrible fear of any unsupervised activity in which black people might engage. As a result, the South developed distinctive policing policies called slave patrols, alarm men, or searchers by the authorities who appointed them. They were known as paddy rollers, padaroles, padroles, and padarollers by the populations they policed. Michael Hindus cites three related reasons why the criminal justice system in the South developed along different lines than it did in the North. One, tradition, two, social and economic development, and three, slavery. Of these three, slavery exerted the most powerful influence. It held a central place in Southern society, in the social and political as well as the economic life of the region. For many Southerners, a future without slavery was literally inconceivable. Thus, the whole of Southern society was, at times, directed to the defense of the peculiar institution. Where the demands of slavery conflicted with the region's traditions and social development, and to a lesser extent when it interfered with economic development, the maintenance of the slave system was nearly always preferred. Faced with the difficulties of keeping a major portion of the population enslaved to a small elite, Southern society borrowed from the practices of the Caribbean, especially Barbados. There, slave owners used professional slave catchers and militias to capture runaways, while overseers were responsible for maintaining order on the plantations. The weaknesses of this system led to the creation of slave codes, laws directed specifically to the governing of slaves. Beginning in 1661, the slave code shifted the responsibilities of enforcement from the overseers to the entire white population. Shortly thereafter, in the 1680s, the militia began making regular patrols to catch runaways, prevent slave gatherings, search slave quarters, keep order at markets, funerals, and festivals, and generally intimidate the black population. Quote, the final move in policing Barbadian slaves in the 17th century came with the importation of 2,000 professional English soldiers who were installed on plantations as intimidating militia tenants. Arriving between 1696 and 1702, they did not perform manual labor but instead functioned exclusively as slave control forces. Their presence served the white colonists' purpose well. Throughout the 18th century, only one slave rebellion attempt was reported in Barbados. Unquote. During the same period, South Carolina passed laws restricting the slaves' ability to travel and trade and created the Charleston Town Watch. Beginning in 1671, this watch consisted of the regular constables and a rotation of six citizens. It looked for any sign of trouble, fires, Indian attacks, or slave gatherings. The laws also established a militia system, with every white man between 16 and 60 years old required to serve. In 1686, South Carolina passed a law enabling any white person to apprehend and punish runaway slaves. 
A few years later, the 1690 Act for the Better Ordering of Slaves required, quote, all persons under penalty of 40 shillings to arrest and chastise any slave out of his home plantation without a proper pass, unquote. Those who captured runaways could receive a reward. In 1704, fears of a Spanish invasion combined with the ever-present threat of a slave revolt led South Carolina to form its first official slave patrols. The colony faced two types of danger and divided its military capacity accordingly. Henceforth, the militia would guard against outside attack and the patrol would be left behind to protect against insurrection. Patrollers would gather from time to time and, as instructed by law, quote, ride from plantation to plantation and into any plantation within the limits or precincts as the general shall think fit and take up all slaves which they shall meet without their master's plantation, which have not a permit or ticket from their masters and the same punish. In 1721, the law was revised to shift its focus from runaways to revolts. The new law ordered the patrols to, quote, prevent all cabalings among Negroes by dispersing of them when drumming or playing and to search all Negro houses for arms or other offensive weapons, unquote. The patrollers seized other goods as well, alleging them to be stolen and were permitted to keep for their own whatever they took. The patrol was essentially an institutionalized extension of the more informal system described by the 1686 law. The law's intention was, foremost, to divide the means of protecting the city so that both internal and external threats could be met simultaneously. It did not represent an effort to specialize slave control, or to reduce the obligations of each white citizen, or to interfere with the personal authority of the slave owner. But whatever the intention behind it, the law did, or threatened to do, all three. Quote, Reform required increasing the amount of time each man devoted to protecting the safety and property of others, which was repugnant to Southern white ideas of individual freedom and, indirectly, their sense of personal honor. No white man should have to cower before slaves, it was thought, and patrols were an unequivocal manifestation of white fear. Southern honor required the individual to protect his name and family without the assistance of courts or the community. Patrols, by their very nature, were communal, intrusive in the master-slave relationship, and implied that the individual alone could not adequately control his bondsmen." Unquote. Slave patrols were both pr a product of white racism vital to the survival of slavery and a manifest contradiction of the ideology and culture it was meant to protect. Quote, to admit that danger existed was to concede the possibility of fear. To admit that slaves posed a threat could undermine confidence in the entire way of life. Unquote. Of course, to ignore the threat of insurrection could prove equally as dangerous. The patrols were created to defend slavery, but their effectiveness was limited by the same ideology that justified the slave system. For white people in the South, slavery was valued in part as a means of maintaining the entire social order and a deeply cherished way of life. It would not be an exaggeration to say that they imagined that the slave system upheld civilization itself, in part by controlling the group that most threatened it, the slaves. This racist ideology was self-reinforcing and provided for its own defense. Quote, as long as Charlestonians believed that blacks were the sole threat to order, white supremacy served in lieu of a police force. In such a racially stratified society, with a few legal rights accorded to the black man, with few legal rights accorded to the black man, every white person, by virtue of his skin, had sufficient authority over blacks. Unquote. 
So rather than develop more formal means of control, Southern ideology encouraged a reliance on informal systems rooted in racism. This was not only true of the police function, but of all authority. While the rest of the country developed systems of authority that were formal, legalistic, and centered on the state, the South maintained a unique commitment to a system that was informal, personalistic, characterized by deference and paternalism, diffused, and in which the state was kept deliberately weak. When compared to northern cities of the 19th century, plantation life seems positively futile. Quote, In other words, the plantation was a sort of governmental unit as to the police control of the slave, and to its head the slave owner was given in large measure the sovereign management of its affairs under certain restrictions. Unquote. The arrangement was, in the fullest, traditional sense of the word, patriarchal. Not only slaves, but also white women and children were subject to the personal authority of male heads of households. Any intercession in these relationships was apt to be viewed negatively. Slave owners felt that a usurpation of their authority, whoops, slave owners felt that any outside intervention, especially that of the state, represented not only a usurpation of their authority, but also a personal slight, implying that the master was not up to the task of controlling his slaves. This sentiment, an important aspect of Southern honor, created a major impediment to the effective control of the black population. It discouraged white elites from enhancing the means of social control. Quote, Only the state, through the agency of courts, councils, and militia, could force whites to act in concerted fashion to protect their own self-interest, and some legislatures, like South Carolina's, simply refused to reform patrol policies, practices, in order to coerce more public service from their constituents." Unquote. Progress here came not as the result of continual efforts at critique and improvement, but in a rush during times of crisis, particularly following real or rumored revolts. Aside from minor alterations in 1737 and 1740, the patrol system established in 1704 survived virtually unaltered until 1819. The 1737 and 1740 Acts limited the personnel of the patrols, first to landowners of 50 acres or more, and then to slave owners and overseers. But in 1819, the state legislature, spurred by two separate slave revolts shortly before, again made all free white males aged 18 to 45 liable for patrol duty, without compensation. Substitutes could be sent for a fee, and discipline came in the form of fines. After this revision, the structure and activities of the patrols remained relatively unchanged until the Civil War. While, quote, the patrol system in South Carolina seems to have been the oldest, most elaborate, and best documented, unquote, other colonies followed suit. Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Mississippi all had similar arrangements, with variations. In Georgia, slave patrols were also responsible for disciplining disorderly white people, especially vagrants. In Tennessee, the law required slave owners to provide patrols on the plantations themselves, in addition to those that rode between plantations. In Kentucky, after a series of revolts, some cities established round-the-clock patrols, and in Mississippi, the first patrols were federal troops. These were gradually replaced by the militia, then by groups appointed by county boards. Until 1660, Virginia relied more on indentured European servants than on African slaves, though both groups sought to escape their bonds. Initially, the colonists used the hue and cry to mobilize the community and recapture runaways. 
1669, the colonial legislature began offering a reward, paid in tobacco, to anyone who returned a runaway. And in 1680, as the slave population grew, slaves were required to carry passes, as debtors and Native Americans already had been. Slaves were singled out for special enforcement measures beginning in 1691, when the legislature required sheriffs to raise posses for their recapture. In 1727, this responsibility was transferred to the militia, creating the colony's first slave patrol. At first, the militia only patrolled as needed, but after a failed rebellion in 1730, it began regular patrols two or three times each week. In 1754, county courts began paying patrollers and requiring reports from their captains. At the, after that point, Virginia's patrols remained essentially the same until the Civil War. North Carolina's system developed along similar lines, driven by the same concerns. The colony required passes for slaves, debtors, and Native Americans beginning in 1669. In 1753, patrols were instituted. Called searches, the patrols were initially responsible for searching the slaves' homes, but couldn't stop them between plantations. This function reflected the motives behind their creation. The lawmakers were more afraid of revolts than escapes. In 1779, paid patrols were established, with expanded powers for searching the homes of white people and stopping slaves whenever they were off the plantation. With this, they came to closely resemble the patrols already in place elsewhere, and after 1802, they were placed under the auspices of the county court rather than the militia. Whether they supervised by the militia or the courts, whether chiefly concerned with escapes or revolts, whether paid or conscripted, whether slave owners or poor white people, the rural patrols all engaged in roughly the same activities and served the same function. Quote, Throughout all of the southern states during the antebellum period, roving armed police patrols scoured the countryside day and night, intimidating, terrorizing, and brutalizing slaves into submission and meekness. Unquote. They patrolled together in beat companies on horseback and usually at night. Along the roads, they would stop any black person they encountered, demand his pass, beat him if he was without one, and return him to the plantation or hold him in the jail. For this, they carried guns, whips, and binding ropes. They would search slaves' homes, and sometimes the homes of disreputable white people, looking for illegal visitors, weapons, and stolen goods. Guns and horses were confiscated, as a matter of course, and as were linen and china, slaves weren't allowed to have anything too valuable. Books and paper were often confiscated as well. Education itself was deemed subversive. The patrols would break up any unsupervised gathering of slaves, especially meetings of religious groups the patrollers themselves disliked. Baptist and Methodist services were specifically targeted. One former slave, Ida Henry, recalled an assault against her mother. Quote, De patrollers wouldn't allow the slaves to hold night services, and one night they caught me mother out praying. They stripped her naked and tied her hands together, and with a rope tied to handcuffs, and threw one end of the rope over the, a limb and tied the other end to the pummel of the saddle on a horse. As me mother weighed about two hundred, they pulled her up so that her toes could barely touch the ground and whipped her." Unquote. Patrollers couldn't legally interfere with a slave carrying a pass. But patrollers would often harass black people whom they felt to be traveling too far or too often. Moses Grandy, a former slave, verified that the law did little to restrain the patrollers. Quote, if a Negro has given offense to the patrol, even by so innocent a matter as dressing tidily, to go to a place of worship, 
He will be seized by one of them, and another will tear up his pass. While one is flogging him, the others will look another way. So when he or his master makes a complaint of his having been beaten without cause, and he points out the person who did it, the others will swear they saw no one beat him." Unquote. Other abuses were also common. Black women faced sexual abuse at the hands of patrollers, both when they were found on the road and during searches of their homes. Patrollers sometimes kidnapped free black people and sold them as slaves. They also frequently threatened black people with mutilations, sometimes with a basis in law. Between 1712 and 1740, South Carolina law required escalating tortures for captured runaways, from slitting the nose to severing one foot. Masters sometimes complained about the abuses directed against the slaves, but courts were generally reluctant to award damages or discipline the patrollers for fear of undermining the patrol system. The main restraint on the actions of patrollers was the economic value of the slave's life. Slaves were rarely killed since the local government would then have to compensate the owner. In general, however, the patrols were invested with vast authority and wide discretion, as North Carolina court explained in 1845. Quote, patrols partake of a judicial or quasi-judicial and executive character. Judicial, so far as deciding upon each case of a slave taken up by them, whether the law has been violated by him or not, and adjudging the punishment to be inflicted. Is he off his master's plantation without a proper permit or pass? Of this the patrol must judge and decide. If punishment is to be inflicted, they must adjudge, decide as to the question. Five stripes may in some cases be sufficient, while others may demand the full penalty of the law." Unquote. To summarize, the state control of slave behavior advanced through three stages. First, legislation was passed restricting the activities of slaves. Second, this legislation was supplemented with requirements that every white man enforces demands. Third, over time this system of enforcement gradually came to be regulated, either by the militia or by the courts. The transition between these second and third steps was a slow one. Each colony tried to cope with the unreliable nature of private enforcement, first by applying rewards and penalties, and later by appointing particular individuals to take on the duty. Volunteerism was eventually replaced with community-sanctioned authority in the form of slave patrols. Among the factors determining the rate of this transition and the eventual shape of the patrols were the date of the settlement, the size of a slave population, the size of the white population, threats of revolt, geography, and population density. As this suggests, slave patrols developed differently in the cities than in the countryside. That's the end of the first part of chapter 2.